Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I have the pleasure of speaking today with Dr. Brian Hatcher. He is a professor of religious studies at Tufts University. We will be speaking on his exciting new book, Hinduism Before Reform. Hello, Brian. How are you today? I'm doing well, Raj. How about you? I'm doing well as well. Apparently, um, the world is joining us in terms of having wheelings and dealings online the way we are right now. So it's a good time to be doing stuff remotely. It does seem to be, unfortunately. <laughs> interesting because um, most of my interactions with clients and colleagues and interviewees are are online on Zoom as we are now or over the phone. So um, oddly enough, I don't have to change too much of my yeah, my, stomp, my stomping grounds. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, for your book, it's there's so much in there. It's hard for me to gauge how much background our audience would have on how we think of Hinduism, like how we think of modern Hinduism, how we teach Hinduism. And so I'd rather do a little bit of review for those who are acquainted with that rather than leave folks lost in the dark because that, what you and I take for granted as scholars of Hinduism, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of others may not be in on that narrative. And without understanding that narrative, we can't understand the significance of what you're trying to do. Exactly. So maybe counterintuitively, you could tell us what you're, um, you can tell us the narrative that maybe you're problematizing. So before this book, how would we be teaching Hinduism or modern Hinduism? Yeah, so I think one one sort of um, easy way into answering that is to think about standard textbook treatments of either, it could be the history of South Asia or modern South Asia in particular, or it could be the modern Hinduism textbook, or more broadly, a Hinduism textbook. All of these, when they treat the historical development of modern Hinduism, they typically have run through the classical and what we might call post-classical period, what we might call pre-modern Hinduism. And and we've reviewed, you know, classical patterns of uh, devotional theism and temple worship and gone on into pre-modern bhakti movements and all of this. And then we usually come up smack dab on the year 1800, and we introduce uh, Ramahan Roy as the father of modern India, the first religious reformer in India. And then when you look at a lot of these textbook treatments, they tend to skip, skip rapidly from the advent of Ramahan Roy and the establishment of the Brahmo Samaj in the early 19th century as a pattern of enlightened, reformed, uh, morally articulated vision of Hinduism to the late 19th century with the advent of someone like Sri Ramakrishna and then his disciples, Swami Vivekananda. And we get quickly into the 20th century from there to Mahatma Gandhi and on to the project of um, uh, the, the freedom movement and independence for the Indian nation state. And um, what I what I tend to feel happens is, A, a number of important developments are elided in that jump from Ramohan to the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. That is, a whole century's worth of really consequential developments are 
are skipped over in in any detailed sense. But secondly, also there's a there's a kind of presumed narrative about modernity and the relationship between the kinds of Hinduism that will be relevant for the shaping of the modern Indian state, and that tends to be a kind of liberal vision of Hinduism as freed from the shackles of of ritual and priestcraft and restraint and opened up into the world of freedom and reason and enlightenment. So there's a narrative there about what uh, true Hinduism can look like under the right conditions of modernity. Sometimes in, in older colonialist treatments, that's linked obviously to the to the enlivening, if you will, influence of European culture and British uh, British traditions in particular. But even so, it, it factors in nationalist narratives as well as the the kind of reforming of a tradition toward an appropriate mode of religion for an independent secular nation state. So what I'm trying to do is just problematize that narrative while also opening up the 19th century for a bit more careful uh, historical study. And if I can say one more thing on that, what the book really does, and it, it's it's in part an answer to my to my the problematic I've just sketched, but also perhaps not a complete rectification of the problem is the book zeroes in on the early 19th century. In fact, the last quarter of the 18th and the first quarter of the 19th century is what I call the period of the early colonial. And one of my you know, chief goals in the book is to indicate that that period is radically different from the period of the late colonial. If we think of the conditions shaping the world of a Swami Vivekananda uh, uh, in the late 19th century, those conditions were very different from what shaped the world of a Ramahan Roy. Uh, in the early colonial period. So one of one of my goals is to suggest that far from skipping over the 19th century, as if we can jump from Ramahan to Vivekananda in one easy swoop, we need to slow down and think about the 100 years separating these two men, or nearly 100 years, and the kinds of changes that took place from the early to the late colonial. So that's a, a sub-theme in the book uh, that maybe we can talk about as we go along. So that's a good sort of um, thirty thousand foot view later yeah. on of, of 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 what you're engaging. Now, just let's hone in on this figure, Ramon Roy. And before we talk too much about the insights you provide with your work, how is he understood? Um, why is this figure so important in how we understand and teach Hinduism generally? Yeah, and I, and I almost um, I want to I want to introduce right here the the comparative framework of the book just to just indicate to, to readers the ways in which um, the book tries to get away from thinking as, of Ramahan as the starting point, which, which we're doing here now, and it's entirely understandable, particularly in relationship to the way in which you rightly suggest, let's think about what you're trying to correct before we go on to thinking about what the correction looks like. But part of the problem is we we loop immediately back into talking in the ways we're accustomed to talking about, beginning with Ramahan Roy again. So, I mean, the book is premised on an insight I had that um, struck me rather profoundly that Ramahan Roy is exactly contemporaneous in his dates, nearly exactly, with the figure of Sahojanan Swami, the founder of the Swami Narayan Sampradaya in uh, early colonial Gujarat. So, it struck me we have two figures at the head of two immensely important modern Hindu organizations who arise at the same time and articulate what look to be very different visions of modern Hinduism. So it immediately suggested to me 
a way to bring Sahajanam Swami into the picture, but also then to throw our understanding of Ramahan into a slightly different um, angle of attack, if you will. So in that sense, so then we can go back and think about how do we imagine Ramahan typically? Well, the, the, the operative metaphor typically is the father of modern India, right? That he is the, the person we associate with the, the arrival of uh, a reasoned analysis of scripture, uh, the articulation of a critique of so-called, quote-unquote, medieval Hinduism as polytheistic, based in image worship and framed by the authority of Brahmanical uh, priestly ritual. So he's the, the figure of liberal emancipation, if you will, who, who opens up a pathway for Hindus to be Hindu while, without being enmeshed in the sort of um, frameworks of pre-modern Hindu religious uh, practice and theology. So he's the, 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 the forerunner, the, the pathfinder for what a, an emancipated modern religion will look like in India. So we have um, a lot to do to un, unthink him in that role in some ways, although I, my goal is not to, to tarnish Ramahan's legacy or to, to cast doubt on what he accomplished. It's simply to reframe him, uh, to find a different way to think about his originality, if you will, and again, by doing that in comparison to the figure of Sahajanan Swami in Gujarat. So then I think you've pretty much already answered this, but through your comparison of these two figures, what is the primary goal or argument of Hinduism before form? I guess what I'm concerned with, if you've noticed already, I've, I've used a lot of um, tropes and the rhetoric of liberal religion, um, which are themselves kind of framed in terms of a basically Protestant or quasi-Protestant critique of, uh, of Roman Catholic religion, if you will, as the emancipation from priestcraft, the questioning of ritual, the primacy of spirit over law, all these tropes have come to shape the ways in which we think of the modernity of the Brahmo Samaj founded by Ramahan as being sort of consonant with or congruent with a, a liberal vision of, of modern rational progressive religion. And I'm simply trying to say, while those things may not be untrue about the Brahma Samaj, they also encode a kind of um, analytic and normative set of judgments that bear our scrutiny because they lead us into certain avenues of um, uh, I guess, uh, political and social judgments about other types of religion. And in this case, the foil is the Swami Narayan Sampradaya, which um, is today probably one of the most visible forms of diasporic Hinduism uh, and a very operative mode of Hinduism in India as well, but can be construed as um, looking all too familiar as a kind of quote-unquote traditionalist, guru-based uh, poly, you know, uh, uh, what do I want to say, image-worshipping Vaishnava kind of Hinduism. So can be seen as problematic from the standpoint of this uh, prototypical liberal religion that we associate with Ramon Roy. So the goal of the book is to find another way to think about the way modern Hinduism sort of gets off the ground in the early colonial period in relation to the conditions on the ground in the early colonial moment to to 
find a way to compare two hugely important movements without having the comparison rest upon a normative judgment about one's uh, modernity and the other's backwardness, if you will. I don't know if I, I got lost in my own explication there, so that may not have made much sense. No, this is the scenic route. I mean, there are a lot of ideas <laughs> and a lot of there are a lot of points of engagement. I mean, uh, so many directions. So, um, let me just stay uh, more focused on the book for a quick moment before we we speak more creatively. What what's your data? What's your methodology? What are you looking at to craft your arguments? Well, primarily I'm looking at uh, the life histories, and we can think of those as hagiographies and also biography slash autobiography. Uh, more hagiography in the case of Sajjan Swami, more history and uh, even some snippets of autobiography in the case of Ramahan. I'm looking in particular at evidence about the conditions on the ground and what I what one one part of the book is to frame a comparison of what's happening in the eastern region and the and in Gujarat. So in Bengal and Gujarat are compared in the early colonial moment for thinking about the conditions on the ground, trying to correct again some presumptions about what happens with the advent of modernity in India by way of presuppositions about there being a radical break uh, under British rule away from chaos and anarchy towards a kind of stability and um, uh, enlightenment brought through the agency under the aegis of uh, British uh, imperial rule. So I'm looking at a lot of historical data from Gujarat and Bengal to try to sketch two frontiers, if you will, of religious change, show what they share, but also how they're distinctive and how they then can help us situate those lives of Sahajanan Swami and Ramahan in their context. And then finally, I'm trying to look at evidence about what I call polity formation. That is, I, I try to avoid speaking of either the Swaminarayan Sampradaya or the Brahma Samaj as religious movements, because the overarching goal of the book is to try to talk about modern Hinduism without invoking the idioms and tropes of reform. And the idea of the modern re- religious reform movement is so pervasive that I have to engage in a really aggressive attempt not to use that language. So what I choose to do is think about these two figures as early colonial creators of religious polities. And to do this, I try to use the evidence from within both the Brahma Samaj project and the Swami Narayan project of scripturalization and um, hermeneutics to make sense of how these two men promulgated their polities through the articulation of uh, the meaning of scripture and their own authority as what I call ruling lords or masters. So through this um, counterintuitive yet fascinating comparison, um, so so tell us what, what have you found in comparing these two men? In what ways are they analogs? In what ways are they not? Well, I mean, obviously the, the most compelling thing to strike me early on was the, the fact of their near contemporaneous dates. So Sajanan born 1781 and Ramahan born 1772 or perhaps 1774 or 76, we don't know for sure. Both dying within two or three years of one another, Sajanan dying in 1830 and Ramahan dying in 1833 in, in Britain, of course. Um, so their, their dates are 
nearly exactly contemporaneous. Um, the worlds they inhabited, I argue, were cognate insofar as rather than being uh, either of them located in contexts of chaos, anarchy, and the degradation of medieval Hinduism, were actually worlds of rich economic, social, and political change, and worlds which therefore provided all sorts of avenues for what I call rather savvy and canny, uh, almost um, religious entrepreneurs in a way, to uh, take advantage of um, the, the, the context on the ground to advance their agendas. Um, so uh, is, I've, I've lost the train of my thought there. Your question well, again. Essentially, <laughs> essentially yeah. I, was ask, I was asking you as general as possible, uh, I was yeah. asking you the general question as to what extent they were analogs and to what extent they were not, so that you could have yeah. leeway to share some of your findings. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's sort of the, the over the course of the book, uh, a good deal of work is done to sketch what they share as what I call early colonial religious lords. So this is will itself be perhaps problematic to many to think of Ramahan as a as a kind of a lordly figure, maybe problematic to some, but um, I try to sketch the ways in which at a, at a functional level, using the work of, of Ron and and Amrita Shodan and others, I try to show the ways in which we can think of their mastery as cognate. That is, they are ruling lords who convene around them certain kinds of courts that are framed around their authority and in relation to the promulgation of new norms and rules about conduct. Two different frameworks, obviously. So I begin with the similarities of what they do by way of promulgation of polities, and I end the book with reflecting, okay, now I've tried to show what these two men share, but let's not forget that they also created two very different polities. So by the end of the book, I'm trying to think about how those polities differed, and both in their moment and in their eventual trajectories toward um, subsequent uh, 19th century and 20th century history. So there we come up against a problem that uh, I've already alluded to, which is what do we have now to say, having reviewed their, what they share by way of their moment and their sort of um, agency as polity promulgators, what do we have to say now about what appear to be still radical differences between the movements that they created between a guru-based um, devotional sampradaya and what looks to be more scripturally oriented um, liberal project of religious uh, change in the form of the Brahma Samaj. And so I, I end the book by suggesting there are, there are important differences in that the satsang, the community of fellowship created by Sajanan Swami is relatively internally based communitarian uh, project based on following of rules uh, enacted by the guru and, and enshrined in the authority of his successors and to some degrees maintained through projects of self-control, but also through communal surveillance and, and internal uh, monitoring of behavior. Whereas the, the Brahma Samaj looks more like a group that erred less on that kind of communitarian solidarity and more on a kind of shared ethic that would in, uh, shape social life in a, in a public sphere that became more disseminated in terms of a, an aspirant middle class uh, in places like Kolkata originally, and then expanding outward from there. 
leading to a to a situation in which the, the Brahmo ethic becomes almost, as David Kopp put it, synonymous with what he called the modern Indian mind. So we have, and this is this again brings us back to the the fundamental tension in the scholarship between the two movements, um, which is the apparent appearance that the Brahmo Samaj looks entirely congruent with a kind of modern liberal public sphere, whereas the Swami Narayan Sampradaya looks like the risk to that liberal public sphere from a Sampradayak, that is, um, communalist, conservative, tradition-based movement that's more insular and perhaps whose values are shielded and in some cases could possibly be antithetical to the project of uh, a liberal religion in India. So that's, a, that's again, 30,000 feet uh, and sort of ending where I end after a lot of sort of analysis of the the two polities. So um, comment on the difference between these two, these two figures are operating in two ecosystems. Um, one at the center of imperial presence and one on the periphery, as you know, in your book. So maybe comment on how that comes to bear on their, their respective projects. Yeah, I'm, it's, it's really, I'm playing with uh, spatial, tropes as much as tropes about reform and the center periphery is an important one to think through. Um, obviously, um, places like Kolkata are figured as the epicenters of religious reform in India. And so I speak about standard narratives of religious change in India being predicated on the idea of reform spreading outward from a center like Kolkata and expanding uh, inexorably across India and involving more and more regions in the project of modernity. And in part, I want to fight against that, um, that trope by way of showing, again, this, this goes to their contemporaneity on two different sides of the subcontinent, that two kinds of religious polity construction were taking place simultaneously, and neither were we don't need the narratives of modern progress uh, and even imperial progress to make sense of what these two men accomplished in their lifetimes. We can ground them instead in the changes that were um, relevant within the two um, spheres in which they operated um, and then come back again and think about what it means to say one man operated on the periphery and one man was in the center. Uh, because it, one of the standard ways to make sense of of these two men has been to say that, uh, well, we can understand Ramahan's modernity because he came so directly in contact with British colonial uh, actors that he was necessarily shaped by the British uh, project of enlightenment, but also the Christian project of reform. Whereas Sahajanan Swami was on the periphery, had no real contact with European uh, civilizing mission, and therefore we can understand why he remained quote unquote traditionalist. But as it turns out, as I try to show, uh, Sahajanan Swami was, uh, you know, perhaps you can't make the case that he was as directly engaged with colonial actors as Ramahan Roy was. Obviously, Ramahan ended up uh, traveling to Britain and, and, and dying there in his relationship with Unitarians and with British um, figures of authority. But if you look at the evidence from diaries and from the community itself, it's, it's clear that Sahajanan Swami was very clear with the imperial presence in Gujarat and was uh, not averse to taking advantage of that presence in order to 
foster his own goals by way of the security of this new polity that he was fashioning. So I try to suggest that both men were working to insert polities into what I call an imperial scale of forms. That is, there was an emerging new imperial formation under the form of the British that was making its presence felt in both regions in different ways, but the over against which each man tried to um, uh, institute his polity and secure its welfare by asking for assistance or working in in, um, concert with British authority. So I end the book by, by saying that in the end, neither is more modern than the other because of their contact with, uh, you know, greater or lesser contact with the British. That that was a factor in both figures' lives. Um, but, of course, the differences emerge in what they did with the conditions on the ground and what their, their theological programs led them to institute by way of um, social norms and religious values. Would you say that, um, I imagine you would agree that um, in the case of Ram Mohan Roy, his, his life and work was more directly impacted or shaped by colonial presence? Would I just say that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, as I say, we can't, we can't deny that. Um, he's active in, a, in, in the, what Peter Marshall called the bridgehead, the imperial bridgehead in Kolkata. I mean, he's, he's deeply influenced from an early age by his contacts with uh, various residents and his work with factors and other people under uh, the British administration. So there's no way in which we can, we can say that he isn't the more deeply entwined with British rule. But I, I, I don't want the question of the nature of the two polities to depend on the greater or lesser mathematics or arithmetic of who was you know, more exposed to British culture. I don't think that's necessarily the right answer to, to understanding um, the nature of the two polities or, or framing a comparison between, between them, because it leads too easily to the, to the assumption, again, that oh, Ramohans was necessarily the more modern, the more advanced, and the more um, uh, liberal by virtue of that greater contact, whereas um, Sahajanans is destined to be rated as uh, backward. And so it, it's obvious that you are contributing to the history of ideas or understanding of a historical epoch. Uh, do you consider in your work or, or thought um, how your findings bear on self-identification, how Hindus himself may regard what Ramon Roy was doing in that historical moment? I want to make sure I understand your question, um, I think I'm, do I, let me, th- you, are you asking whether I'm aware of how Indians themselves or members of these movements in particular have framed the story of their own leaders? Uh, well, there's the, the, there is, um, it seems to me that you're shedding light or attempting to shed light on a specific Epoch in history, yeah. Uh, roughly the, the life and works of these two uh, figures, these two lords, as you would say, rather than reformers. Um, 
So let me circle back at the outside. Yeah. If memory serves at the outside of your introduction. And I'm, not, and I'm not trying to be evasive here. I just want to make sure no, I understand no, no, no. what you're asking. Yeah. Uh, I get you. I get you loud and clear. Um, at the outside of your, your introduction, I believe it is, or first chapter, you talk about risk. Mm-hmm. And that going down this road of, of intellectual discovery um, is uh, a risk that you're taking. And if I'm not mistaken, it's a risk of upset, up, you take the risk of upsetting people. Um, so, so tell me a little bit more about that. How do you yeah. think, what is that? What do you mean by that? Well, the, the, there are a number of risks. Uh, you know, the risk to my own his, reputation would be to dare, uh, in the scholarly, um, con, to dare to risk upsetting the scholarly consensus around a figure like Ramon Roy by, by treating him as a, as a Lord rather than a modern liberal reformer. So the risk is to, to you know, to will people think I've lost my mind or am arguing something that's just patently untrue? Um, and I and I make I make the point in the book that you know it's not often we hear him referred to as King Ramon, but there I did come across one reference for an Indian author who referred to him as King Ramon, and I thought well of course he did because Raja is our we standard translation for Raja as King. Uh, and we tend to forget these are titles bestowed on his family and bestowed on him by the emperor when he headed off to Britain. But it it points towards something that's not insignificant, which is that there's a lordship about the man. And so I, I try to frame his lordship in terms of an Indo-Persian uh, world in which he manifested a kind of authority as a ruling lord. Um, and so I take a risk of bringing that forward. And I can imagine Brahmos in particular being troubled by the idea that their um, egalitarian, liberal-minded, progressive reformer is being treated as an authoritarian religious leader and I'm, I'm, or, or Lord in a non-religious sense even. So there's a risk there. I think there's another risk in, in, in view of this consensus again about the story about modern Hinduism and the story of modern India. And here uh, I use Martha Nussbaum as a foil in the book. Uh, in the introduction, I, I look at her book, The Crisis Within from 2007, which she wrote in the wake of the Godra um, incident, incident and the pogrom against Muslims in Gujarat, uh, where she zeroes in on what's up in Gujarat, what's the problem in Gujarat and what's up with these uh, Hindus who are murdering Muslims in the name of a kind of Hindutva. And she zeroes in even more particular in one chapter on the Swaminarayan Sampradaya by visiting a, a mandir in Illinois uh, in a kind of mode of uh, underground uh, surveillance to see, you know, what are these people up to as if she's going into the inner sanctum of a, of a cult or a, uh, esoteric sect, and she's going to expose the strange, uh, uh, deluded thinking of these, um, uh, you know, radical um, religious zealots. So I risk, you know, and her story in that book makes perfect sense in terms of the narrative I'm trying to problematize. That is, India's struggle with religion. I think that was the title of a maybe Jerry Larson book, um, has been the struggle to emancipate. Uh, you know, religious life and spirituality from the shackles of tradition and uh, priestly authority. Well, so if you follow that narrative, her analysis of Swami Narayan Sampradaya makes perfect sense 
And we come away in her vision, celebrating the Brahmo poetry of Rabindranath Tagore in the modern Indian nation and looking askance at the Swaminarayanis. So I'm taking a big risk in saying, well, let's not write them off that quickly and let's not uh, use this, this rather crude tool of um, reform-based tropes to say that they represent inherently or historically the kind of risk she poses, that, poses them to be in the book. So there's a risk there, right? So there's and, this notion, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. There's this notion, uh, you're driving at this notion that somehow uh, this idea that the, that the Brahma Samaj movement may somehow be more valid, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. or than the Somanaya movement. Um, in whom do you think this ethos is prevalent? Uh, a lot of us in the study of Hinduism, I think, are, are you know, I mean more by it. Uh, and it's also, you, you mean in a more uh, wider... I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, um, is this, in, in your view, is that, is that notion um, equally prevalent among practicing Hindus uh, as well as scholars of Hinduism? Well, this is the, I mean, this is the, the moment we're, we're facing right now, of course. I mean, this is what makes the uh, recourse to Nussbaum's book so, so um, useful and so telling is that, you know, when she was writing, she couldn't predict that Modi would end up becoming the prime minister of India. Uh, at the time she's writing, he, he was chief minister of Gujarat. And at the time he had been, you know, denied a visa to enter the United States and all of that in the wake of the Brodra violence. And now, you know, now we've gone through Howdy Modi and we've got the fellowship of, of Trump and Modi and we see what the Hindu Twa movement is doing. Uh, it's going from strength to strength, apparently, on an electoral basis and on the, the basis of the ratcheting up of public uh, hatred and resentment towards uh, Muslims and others, right? So, you know, there's a, there's a, Backlash, if you will, and this is a this goes to the the further risk that you were asking about. There's a risk in writing a book like this that I'll look as if I'm here to defend a kind of uh, uh, conservative Hinduism. I don't. The last thing I want is to be seen as a, an apologist for Hindu. I'm not making the case. Even I'm not even. Let's be clear. I'm I'm largely uh, focused on the early colonial moment, and I. And I disavow any um, claim to be able to see the narrative connection between what happens in 1820 and what, what we're facing today. But obviously, they are clearly related and they're hugely significant given the current political moment. So I'm running the risk of perhaps being seen as, oh, here's uh, someone coming along questioning the, the fundamental values of a liberal, democratic nation state that's pledged itself to the the, to the goals of secularism and bringing forward as if it were on an equal plane with the Brahmo vision, the Swami Narayan vision of a, of a divinely sanctioned uh, religious universe. Um, I guess in defense of the risk I'm taking, I would say is, you know, we know now that the vision of secularism itself is, is grounded in a, in a particular view of religion, right? So, we're finding ourselves as a, as a discipline in religious studies and as scholars of Hinduism in particular, having to think through 
the major categories we use to make sense of our modern history and to think about the, the, the sort of normative and political consequences of the way we talk about religion. And I think what I try to, to strive for is a, I'm just looking for a, a frame, as I put it, a kind of analytical framework within which we can compare the origins of these two polities without presuming uh, superiority or the modernity of the one over the other. Let's do that. Let's think about them at the level of polity analysis. And then from there, we can decide how these things took shape, what conditions have uh, played into their success and their duration over time. And then we can think through about how this has ramifications for the contemporary political landscape. You know, it seems to me that um, uh, strangely, uh, uh, in, in probably a positive way, positive sense that that what you're trying to make sense of um, in the early modern uh, Hindu context, there's certainly an analog um, in terms of recent politics on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. So there's an analog of running the risk of the narrative being launched in an echo chamber mm. um, that's self-validating. Mm-hmm and doesn't quite take into account of what's beyond that echo chamber and dismissing or othering it, whether within Hinduism, whether across religions, whether nation states, this, this idea, um, no one would have guessed, for example, uh, the results of the 2016 election. Hmm. Nobody that I would have spoken to. Yeah. I'm obviously not heavily involved in American politics being. No, most of us were really surprised. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, but that tells you something. That tells you something very, very important about the echo chamber that's being crafted by a self-validating narrative. And I think that that is common to, I think, all tribes, all stripes, all ideologies, all peoples. It's only exasperated in our times. But, but um, so for example, it, even in the way we study Hinduism, you know, I had the great fortune of teaching a, a course called Popular Hinduism uh, that my then advisor, Elizabeth Roman, had, had uh, created. She's also a textualist. Mm-hmm. Um, but the importance of teaching, um, you know, puja, tirta, um, uh, possession, festivals, the, the, you know, the, the festival calendar, sacred time and space, it's, it's mm-hmm. so, it's the lifeblood of practitioners and yet can be so outside of the echo chamber of Sanskrit narrative. Right. 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 And I think that principle applies to what you're saying between the Somanayan movement and the Brahma Samaj movement. Yeah. And I think that principle is not, um, what I'm driving at is that you are touching on a problem that's pervasive in the human experience but you're shedding light on the problem and looking at a specific historical cultural moment that I think needs to be problematized. And I think um, anybody who's confused about why politics are the way they are today Mm. may want to pay careful attention to how we understand our narrative of politics past. Well, I I appreciate that. And I, I, I'm inclined to say I agree. Uh, uh, and in fact, you know, were it not for an agreement with the press about word length, uh, I had written a, a book with it with 30,000 more pages 
attached to it in which many of which I tried to wrestle with the contemporary. I tried to venture into my own thoughts on what is the solution to this tension between a kind of communal, communally based, what you could call forms of popular religion, which are immensely valid and meaningful to people in a variety of, not just the Swami Narayan context, but any number of devotional movements and contexts, and the vision of a kind of world of plural, uh, democratic, social and political life that's respective of human rights and norms of justice. So I couldn't do all that in the book. I ended up having to to leave that off. And I, I basically end the book by saying both polities, if you will, need to be held to account for different kinds of sins of omission and commission, I guess we could say. Um, if the, if the, the, the one takeaway from the Brahmo side might be, you know, we, in many ways, the Brahmos get a pass from too much uh, critical reflection. They, if you read Martha Dustbaum, there's not a lot to be concerned about with the Brahmo vision. But the Brahmos were a largely high caste, um, you know, movement that was based in a kind of middle class aspirationalism that framed a certain bourgeois liberal project that excluded other groups, women, low caste, Muslims, etc. So they 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 need to be held to account for that part of their history, right? Um, by the same token, the Swami Narayanis have to find a way to um, insert their polity within the norms of a modern liberal secular nation state. And I actually refer in passing at the end to a, a verse in the Shiksha Patri, which is one of the texts actually composed by Sahajanan Swami, a set of teachings or rules to guide the community in which he says, you know, the, the Sampradaya should conform itself to the norms of the landscape around it. And I think that's a simple rule that could be followed and taken as a kind of touchstone for the Sampradaya to not fight against norms of liberal democratic uh, uh, public, but to insert themselves and actively integrate as best they can with that while honoring their own commitments to their guru and their and their lord and the the norms of satsang or the, what I call the rule of life that they've all committed to as satsangis. Um, but I think you're you know you 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 framed it really well that way. That as much as this is, and I and I confess it's it's largely oriented to the early colonial moment because I feel there's there's an important historical. Uh, component to the book that needs to be brought forward just there, that this is a, a period we don't understand well enough. I, the number of scholars who are helping us now realize the uniqueness of this moment. So there's some justice simply in focusing on that moment, but there's also a longer durée that needs to be um, addressed, which is how we got from 1830 to, to 2020. Mm-hmm. And and that that hopefully will be I'd like to think the book might open up those conversations and, and f- future research. So speaking of future research, um, what are you working on now? Um, you know, what I have in, in the works right now is a book that actually ends up informing a, a chunk of the current book, Hinduism Before Reform, which is I become interested in the activities of the Dasnami Sampradaya, the, the Shaiva monastic um, community, uh, it's a pan-Indian movement uh, that um, we don't think of often so much in the context of Bengal. So if you look at Matthew Clark, wrote a very good 
survey of the Dastanami movement, um, the, the material on North India and even places like Hyderabad and the work of Karen Lennon and others, you can you can find uh, evidence of the activity of the, 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 the Dastanami sadhus in economic and political networks, in 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 the work of uh, what William Pinch called the you know the warrior the warrior ascetics. But Bengal tends to not figure very actively in those historical discussions, in part because there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence for them. But what I, what I began to find out in some recent field research that actually came about by working with a student who had a project, a Tufts student, and I mentored him in the field, came to realize there were a number of um, current and former Dasnami monastic sites scattered around Western Bengal that have kind of undergone transformations in the 20th century, certainly, but that point back to a time in the late 18th and early 19th century when the Dasnamis were quite active in Western Bengal and Bangladesh. And it it struck me that there's a chance here to, again, tell a different story about religion in Bengal. Because if, if you read the Bengali scholarship on these sites, they often remark that, well, these places are unusual because we don't do this sort of thing in Bengal. We don't build matas like this. We don't have uh, Dasnami sadhus. So these are not really part of our landscape. They're sort of alien to it. And yet what I have been exploring is the ways in which these Dasnamis effectively integrated themselves into the social, political, and economic life of lower Bengal in the 19th century. Um, and in the, in the Hinduism Before Reform book, I... I use that some of that material in my chapter I call fluid landscapes because I'm I'm trying to in that chapter sketch a shared world, uh, and I think this goes to your point about popular religions, tirthas and pujas and all that that you mentioned in the course that you taught. Um, that Ramahan and Sahajanan shared uh, a landscape and a cultural world, and they both moved through it, which is quite fascinating. One of the things they shared is early lives of of. Uh, peregrination, if you will. Uh, so before he became Sajidan Swami, uh, he was known as Nilakantavarni, and he was a renouncer, taking the Shaivite renunciant name and traveling through the Himalayas, and I argue, clearly down into eastern India and Bengal and current Bangladesh. In fact, I one of the things I I claim to show in the book is that is it's very likely that he got as far as uh, the region around Chittagong. Uh, near the Myanmar border. Uh, there's some evidence in the Sanskrit Satsangi Jivanam that's we can almost um, definitively, I think, use to plant him uh, in the landscape of uh, far eastern India, which is quite fascinating because he's thought of as a Gujarati reformer, even though, of course, he's originally from the region of Ayodhya, North India. But what I'm showing is these these men's worlds were were far flung and shaped by a wide range of, of influences. And uh, those influences had a lot to do with what you're calling popular religion. Um, I try to picture Nilakantavarni moving through a world shared with other sadhus, uh, articulated around the authority of local ruling lords in relation to new temples that were popping up in the landscape. Uh, around places like Bogra or in Sitakund range in, in eastern Bangladesh, um, and Ramohan traveling to Lanaris and to studying in Patna, possibly getting as far as Tibet, he claims, but certainly probably Bhutan in northern Bengal. Uh, and 
his interactions then with an Indo-Islamic world, as well as encounters with Jains and Buddhists and others, all of which have shaped his, his religious worldview, but also, I say, became in constituent parts of how he understood the articulation of his own ruling authority. So in terms of popular religion, I think there's a way in which we can ground these two men in their landscapes and learn something about um, uh, lived religion in, in India in the late 18th and early 19th century that we don't often associate, particularly with a figure like Ramon, who we think of as an urban colonial figure. So again, I've segued back to the book, but the, the, in, the, in the new book project, I don't have a title for it yet, but I want to explore some of the material sites, extant uh, monastic sites in lower Bengal, some of which have uh, perished, unfortunately, are in danger of decaying and being recovered by the, the, the surrounding jungle, but others remain active under, under new leadership and often uh, new community organizations have taken them over. Uh, so they... they Few of them remain actively Dasnami anymore, but they have their histories, and it's interesting to try to re- recover those. So that's, that's something I'm working on now. Well, it's perfectly fine that you've segued back into the book, because these conversations, as I mentioned at the outset, are uh, the scenic route. I don't script <laughs> these interviews. Yeah. You know, I don't script the interviews. There's, there's yeah. much more... I think creative exchange happening when uh, one responds in the moment to what yeah. arises from one's interlocutor. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and so isn't it interesting that these two um, figures, you know, these two figures with followings, whatever one wants to call them, lords, uh, reformists, certainly they were figures with followings, impactful men of their times. Isn't it interesting that they both were wanderers, travelers, seekers of sorts, who mm-hmm. came into contact with a variety of stripes and responded differently? Mm-hmm. Uh, to the plurality that they encountered, yeah, um, isn't that doesn't that sound awfully familiar? <laughs> 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 These two responses aren't old, aren't are, are, are new, aren't new exactly. <laughs> the, exactly. The, the, the response to to well, let's go back to the, the tradition to 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 as a response to these, the, the plurality of religious or spiritual. Uh, practices, or yes. wait a minute, let's find a way to open up and make a little more space. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating. Well, and, yeah, and I, I appreciate there's a there's a, a paradigmatic quality certainly to both of them, and there's a, a sense in which this is a set of themes we're familiar with. Those of us who work in religion in South Asia, we, we're familiar with this. Uh, and in the case of Sahajanan Swami, we're, we're working with I, I I work with the Sanskrit hagiographical text, the Satsangijivanam, which is a kind of Puranic text in its scope. It's It sort of aims to be Puranic, but it also aims to be a kind of a Dharma Shastra as well, a, a text on uh, ethics and 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 comportment. But um, that text has such a paradigmatic quality that we have to, of course, read it against the grain, that it's it's kind of a dig vijaya, you know, it's it's the it's the young renouncer spanning the entire subcontinent and sur- surpassing and overcoming all resistance to Vaishnava bhakti along the way, defeating tantrikas and yogis and, and other misguided forms of religion. So it's a, it's a text with a clear normative agenda. We have to read it very carefully, but it does, I'm convinced it encodes some experiences that he passed on to his uh, hagiographer 
so this, 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 these scenes in Eastern India, there are sites that correspond so clearly to what is discussed in the text that they go from the mythic to the historic rather quickly, even if the whole idea that he wandered from uh, uh, the Himalayan, Himalayan sacred sites like Badrinath all the way to Eastern India, down to Puri, down to Rameshwaram, and back up to Gujarat, you know, did his whole circumambulation of the subcontinent. That fits a, a perfect paradigm. And notice it fits the paradigm of what a conquering lord has to do in order to establish their sovereignty is, is conquer the four quarters. So um, this is part of how I say he's able to articulate and the community articulates his lordship uh, is by telling the story of his conquest. Ramahans is, we don't have a hagiographic text like that, but we do have his own accounts of his travels and they, they orient us less maybe to the paradigmatic Sanskrit norms and more to this Indo-Islamic world uh, and certainly a plural world in which it was important for him, given his family background, to know not just Sanskrit, but to know Persian and um, Arabic as well. And so, you know, I focus on his his first well-known work, the Tufat al-Mawakadin, the gift to monotheists, as a, as a work that articulates his clear insertion into an engagement with Indo-Islamic learning. And that's something others have pointed out, but I I try to bring it to the fore as helping us understand some of his ethos or some of his perhaps self-identity as a kind of a, uh, a ruling lord who convenes a darbar around himself and uses that darbar as a forum from which to promulgate a new vision of religion and theology. So, um, yeah, these life stories are fascinating and they're, they're both paradigmatic, but I think there's, there's history there too that we can recover. Certainly. Um, before we sign off, was there anything that you had wanted to discuss about the book that we didn't touch on? Well, I I, I would want to say that book. You know, I, I, everything I do, I think I try to do too many things at once. It's a, I don't know. It's a constitutional defect of my own character or something. I'm always trying to balance or have too many balls juggling at the same time. So the book book does a lot. Uh, one of the things the before. In the title, Hinduism before reform is important to me. It's a, it's marking both a, um, an interpretive move and a and a kind of historical orientation. So the before means let's talk about Hinduism before we invoke the category of reform. So let's just try to find another way to talk about Hinduism without using the discourse of reform. So that's one element of the before. The other part of the before is let's talk about. Uh, what was happening in India before what I call the empire of reform emerges in the latter 19th century, in which the British Empire self-consciously styles itself as a kind of reforming mission of prog progressive improvement of the subcontinent and begins to frame religion along these lines. So uh, from the 1840s, certainly, but certainly after the, the mutiny and on towards the latter part of the 19th century, the, the discourse of reform becomes the almost all-encompassing framework within which to understand modalities of religion in modern India. So I'm saying, let's go back before that. And in going back before it, I try to orient more to the, to the pre-modern and think about issues of continuity between the early colonial and the pre-colonial, if you will, by way of showing, you know, let's not read, again, this goes back to the point I made earlier, let's not read Ramahan and Sahajanan through the lens of a late 19th century understanding of religion. Let's try to understand what their world shared 
with a kind of pre-colonial ethos of plurality, of lordship, of the promulgation of sampradayas or samajas within rather than competing against other forms of religious organization. So it's an attempt to think back. And I draw a lot on scholars who have, have been working of late on the pre-modern, and there's a lot of really good new history on a pre-modern South Asian or early modern. And I think that's important for scholars of modern India to pay attention to, because we have this inevitable challenge of understanding the issue of change and continuity, the whole question of how much rupture was there with the advent of colonialism, um, how, how radically did things change circa 1800. And I'm trying to make the case in the lives of these two men that there's a lot there that we can see as being continuous with the pre-modern. And therefore, let's not rush to um, understand them against the litmus tests that were prominent and prevalent by the late 19th century. So that's, that's the only other thing I'd want to probably bring forward. Well, it's a, it occurred to me that it was a clever play in the title in terms of Hinduism before reform. Uh, it gives a sense of thinking of Hinduism beyond this idea of reform. Um, so that's great. So you'll have to come back when your next book is out. <laughs> That'd be very nice. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate the invitation. I hope I haven't uh, exhausted your, your patience today. <laughs> um, I assure you that I have more time on my hands today. <laughs> and, and as we week. all do. Yeah, as um, we all do. Uh, not to worry. Uh, I really appreciate it, Raj, because the I feel sad that the, the book happened to appear right at the moment when everything shut down. And so I've been, I've been bemoaning the fact that it's hard to, to get word about the book out in a time of uh, social isolation and distancing and all of that. So I'm, I'm grateful to you for the chance to talk a little bit about it. Sure thing. And we'll send a, we'll send a note out in all of our circles that this interview is up and that'll at least alert them to the book for when they're able to go back into bookstores. Yeah, I appreciate it. No problem. Um, for all of you listening out there, um, uh, I'm glad that you're able to listen and that you have some uh, respite <laughs> from thoughts of what's happening in, in the world. Um, until next time, uh, stay safe and keep reading. <laughs>